Christianity. Nominal Christianity. A focus of all of our lives should be living the purpose that God has for us. God is looking for people who are intentional. They're intentional Christians. They're intentional about the kingdom of God. And if I could say it this way, I would sum it up uh, in those first two laws that God gave man. The first would be to love and serve God and have no other God before you. In other words, do things for God vertically. It's a It's a relationship between man and his God. And then the second law that is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a respect for your fellow man and woman. And so in those two laws, you have what God expects from us. He expects a vertical relationship of us to him. And then he expects a relationship between us and and others. And I understand and I know that it can be complicated in this world because there are so many things that we can clearly see that are, uh, in a way, anti Christian. And that word anti, what it means, it doesn't mean against. It, it, in the Greek word, what, when we say anti Christ, what it means is supplanting, it means replacing Christ. And there's a lot of things in this world that want to replace Christ in our life. And it can be a challenge sometimes because we look around at all of these agendas and things that are happening in society and and we can have what we would call a righteous indignation, a righteous anger on behalf of what we see is clear in the Word of God. And I understand that challenge. I I can relate to the challenge. But we are called to love God and to love people. That is first and foremost. And I am disturbed because when I read about the first church in the Bible, when I look at the conquest and the things that they had to endure and they had to live through, There are many things that I see that separate them from what we would call Christianity today. So for just a moment, I want to talk about nominal Christianity. When we look at the early church, they what we see is not a picture of people that are just going with the flow. They're not just people who are taking everything as it comes to them. They're not uh, just letting life push them around and trying to live a life of faith and godliness in a culture that is contrary to godliness and contrary to a life of faith. They did live it out in that culture. Roman culture was very, very Greek and Roman culture was very, very immoral. It was immodest. It was debased, as debased as anything that we would see happening in our world today. They had it. It was there. It was present. But the Christians of that day were not a joke, and they were not a byline of making jokes of society. Instead, they were viewed at as being a threat. 
and they were dealt with as a threat. And so these people were not living like uh, the foam or the flotsam floating on top of the ocean and following the tide and wherever it pushed them to and fro. But instead, they were absolutely living with intent. They were very, very intentional Christians. They understood the challenges that being a Christian would require of them. And not only did they understand it, but they took up those challenges anyway. Daily, they would make a decision of what it would be like to live their life according to the purpose of God for them. Unfortunately, many of us don't lead our lives. We simply accept our lives as they are. I was reading recently and I found myself stirred to my core as I read about converts in South Asia where the religions are predominantly Hinduism and Buddhism, but they were converting to Christianity. And Christianity has been making major inroads there for many years. There are seven questions that a repenting person is asked before they're allowed to take a step into baptism. The first question they ask them is, are you willing to leave home and the blessing of your father? The second question is, are you willing to lose your job? The third question is, are you willing to go to the village of those who will persecute you, forgive them for that persecution? and share the love of Jesus to them anyway. The fourth question is, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? And the fifth question is, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? The sixth and seventh question are these, are you willing to go to prison for your faith? The seventh is, are you willing to die for Jesus? And the person that is asked these questions is given a piece of paper and at the bottom they are to sign their own signature of their own free will that they have decided in that day and that culture and that setting where it's very dangerous to follow Jesus. And I think this is actually what Scripture calls for. Because it seems to be just like what Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When Jesus said that statement, he was not talking about denying the pleasures of of what the world can offer and pulling ourselves away from sin and that being the cross in which we walk and bear. Instead, he was talking about dying out to self. He was talking about dying out to your own will, to your own purpose, to your own plan for your life and submitting to a greater cause because for a person who was carrying a cross, that day was going to end very, very badly. There was no expectation that they would escape that cross. So when Jesus said to his followers, if you'll take up your cross daily and follow me, he was saying, if you'll take up the thing that's going to bring you death, if you'll take up the thing that is going to bring you some suffering, if you'll take up the thing and walk daily, and I have to tell you, it is a daily decision. 
It's not something that just happens in one emotional moment or plea or struggle or decision that my life needs to change in some way because I'm headed down the wrong path. That's not what Jesus' invitation was about. Jesus' invitation was about committing ourselves wholly to something that was more than just an occasional encounter with Him. It was never about the benefits that we might gain from God. It was never about the benefits that we might gain from a church or or being called a Christian. Instead, it was about living each day in a way that made a difference for Christ's purpose in this world. And he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you're here today and you're one of the saved ones, you're one of the ones that have experienced what God has for you, then I'm talking to someone that God sought you out. And he didn't just seek you out so that you could say, well, I'm saved now. He sought you out because he has a plan and a purpose for you in his kingdom. That's why. It's a calling to Christ's purpose, not my own purpose. But sometimes we try and take and wrap up everything that God offers us and pull it into our purpose. And it's a mistake. It's a mistake. So I have some questions. Do you ever wonder about the low spiritual ebb of life? It seems like it's just a powerless you don't feel like it's moving you. Here we are on Sunday, and perhaps maybe this morning you get up and it dawns on you that life's been busy, the week has been a struggle, and there's not been one minute that has been spent with God during the past week, reading the Bible or spending time with Him in prayer, having a conversation with Jesus about His will. I'm talking today about nominal Christianity. I didn't use the word denominational. I know that's very popular now to say we're a non-denominational. I'm not talking about denominations. I'm talking about nominal. Nominal Christianity limits a person's spiritual life. And nominal, what nominal means, there are several synonyms. I looked them up. It means in name only. So-called. Supposed, pretended, self-called. I want to key in on that last one, self-called. Because I can call myself Christian all I want to. But what does my life say? What do other people, when they talk to me, what do they say? And we're dealing with a generation that has become nominal Christianity. It has the name and it has the affiliation, yet Christianity does not affect the world that we live in and it's become this daily thing that that people claim, but there's no behavior. The speech cries otherwise. Their actions cry otherwise. Their bank account cries otherwise. A lot of things that they do in their life, it cries otherwise. And that is not what God intended for Christianity and for His church to become. It was not to be something in name only. It was not to be pretended or supposed. It was not to be just some affiliation or in name only Christian or a so-called Christian or self-proclaimed Christian. 
And so I'm calling us to take an inward look. We have to sometimes come back and draw in and measure and say, what, what is happening in my life? And a person who never measures themselves and doesn't look deeply in their own life, that person is unwise because they lead themselves to their own destruction because they are blinded to them all, their own selves and where they're at in their life. And listen, I'm not trying to beat up on you today. I'm just trying to be honest and talk to you. So what is a nominal Christian? What is a person? And I'm going to talk to you about the warning of nominal Christians that, that Paul wrote to Timothy Nominal Christian is characterized by this. They're always frustrated about life and they can't see the handiwork of God in things unfolding around them. And as I go through these, I want to challenge you, just question yourself. If you want to close your eyes and you want to take a moment and think about it and say, does that apply to me? Am I guilty of that? The second thing they're unaware, completely unaware of the height, width, and depth, and length of God's working. Oblivious, obtuse, might even be a good word, that they're obtuse to what God is doing. They just don't see it. I hardly ever make statements about politics. Prepare yourself, I'm about to make a political statement. And it's not the political statement you think I'm going to make. Daryl, why are you filming? Put that down. I'm just kidding. I don't know if he's filming or not. I saw his phone. I see it. If you're looking around at politics, and I, I encourage you, you've got to vote. You've got to exercise your civil right. You've got to do all of those things. But if you're looking at politics and you're wondering why is it going the way it's going, I'll tell you why it's going the way it's going. God is using our world. You look at any government system, it's in the hand of God. God uses it. It doesn't matter if it's democratic or not. God is in control. He's sovereign. He controls everything. So all of the stuff we get upset about, God is in control. God is bringing our world to its conclusion. And if we're too blind and unaware to see that, it doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are people who are oblivious that God is working even in the things that we think are negative, that we don't like. God is still there. He's present in that. And he's working. The third thing, nominal Christians, they, they live with constant condemnation because grace is not understood or applied. Look, if you're under grace, there is now no more condemnation. If you've applied grace into your life, there is now no more condemnation. You need to let go of your condemnation, let go of your shame. That's the only way you're going to experience victory. And you say, how do I do that? Let me tell you. Let me tell you how you do that. It's, it's so simple, it's going to blow your mind. When that shame and that condemnation comes and says, I remember when you were doing this. I remember when you were involved in that. Do you remember? You say, yes. Thank God I'm delivered. And you start praising God. And that shame and that condemnation, that attack of the enemy, it'll be over like that. And he won't even continue to do that anymore because he realizes you recognize the power of grace and God in your life. 
The fourth thing, nominal Christians are bound by compulsive behavior. Bound by compulsive behavior. So much of life is lived in private. It's lived in the dark that people can never know. Think about friends that I've had that their marriages have come apart and one of the spouses betrayed the relationship. And I've sat with friends and they said, I I just had no clue. I thought I knew. I had no clue. Because we can only judge by the outside. But it's character that God sees. It's the things that are private. It's what we are when we're hidden away and no one knows what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're seeing, what we're involved in. That's what God sees. God's not focused on what I present at work and he's not focused on what I present to the people that I portray myself as something as though I am not. He knows what I am when you don't know what I am. He knows what I am when you're not present and how I treat my wife or I treat my kids or you're not around to see what is happening in our home life. God knows me that way. He knows me better than I know myself because my heart will lie to me and my feelings will lie to me. And a nominal Christian is bound by that compulsive behavior of the same thing happening over and over and over. The fifth thing is nominal Christians are almost prayerless. Prayer has got to be the core of what it is to be Christian because without prayer, I don't know my God. And without knowing my God, I cannot do great exploits. I cannot live to his potential in my life. Not my potential, his potential in my life, his purpose for me. Sixth, they have no personal ministry. No personal ministry. Seventh, they have little vision of God's work in the city around them, the people they're connected to, the family that they have, or in others. Six, eight, sorry, six, I was about to give you more, eight. They spend little time considering eternity. Think about this. When is the last time we've sat down and we thought about if I go out tomorrow, what happens to me? If I go out going home today, what happens to me? What happens to my eternity? What does that mean? They spend little time considering eternity. Nine, they live as an owner rather than a steward. They live as an owner rather than a steward. Our world is so bad right now with thinking that everything is owed to us. Life owes us nothing. The only thing life has given us that we can hope we have every day is breath. But my next meal is not a guarantee. Me having a job, that's not a guarantee. Me taking care of my family, that's not a guarantee. Life owes me nothing. I'm just blessed to get to live it. And God doesn't owe us anything. God can take everything, the whole world, and the fullness thereof is his. And he chooses what he can do with it. It's his. We're not owners. We're stewards. Tenth thing is they criticize others quite 
easily. Be careful of a critical spirit. The 11th thing is they use excuses to justify their conduct. Now listen to me. There are going to be times I'm going to fail. If I'm your pastor and you're around, you stick around long enough to keep letting me beat up with you on like message like this, there are going to be times when I deal with you wrongly, and I'm going to have to come back and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. But if I constantly justify it, I'm just being nominal. I'm in name only because a real Christian, Paul, John talked about that we have an advocate with the Father. When we sin, when we mess up, we have an advocate. We can make it right. And that's not only for sins, but if we sin against a brother or a sister, the Bible tells us to go and make it right, to correct it, not justify what we've done. So they use excuses to justify their conduct. The final and probably the nail in the coffin is they're proud and self-centered proud and self-centered. The idea of nominal Christianity, and I'm not trying to be mean when I make this statement, but I think that is probably the most common form of Christianity that we find in America. Why is it that most Christians are weak? Why is it that we don't see Christians doing as the Christians in this book did? Why are church meetings sometimes as stale as weak old cornbread? And why is it sometimes that we would rather have entertainment than authenticity? It's because we're weak. Christianity as a whole has moved further and further toward what is nominal. What happened to the fire and the power that identified the early church? Where has that gone? There are three obvious reasons that come to my mind. The first is this, the priorities and values that Jesus Christ held are no longer values and priorities for today's Christian. The second is social Christianity. Christianity has been institutionalized, and we've made it a Sunday thing. And it's not meant to be that way. The third is easy living Christianity. I'm going to talk a little bit more in depth about that. And misplaced values. The priority of Jesus Christ was to seek and save that which was lost. Sometimes I have to slow my life down and I have to ask, how much time did I spend this last week seeking and saving what was lost? How much time did I spend trying to reach out and find out where people were hurting. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but through the world, through him, the world might be saved. How much time did we spend last week doing anything that would help save the world? The end product of the church is supposed to be a mature Christian 
That's what I want our church to be. I want it to be an end product where people come in and they develop fully to their potential. And whenever they leave, they don't leave just looking for another church to be a part of. They look for opportunities. Where is God taking me in ministry? And when I say the word ministry, I'm not talking about preaching and I'm not talking about singing. I'm not talking about all the things that we tend to focus on. I'm talking about life-changing, world-altering ministry where we can go and actually take territory back from the enemy. We live in a very dark world. And the only way that a light is going to shine in darkness is if a Christian shines that light. And so when I say a mature Christian, what I mean is what the Bible talks about, which is a disciple-making Christian. Because if you were going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it wasn't enough just to follow him and pick up the the loaves and, and the baskets of bread and follow him and take account of the miracles and later write them down. But it was beyond that. It was to carry his mission forward, which was to make disciples. Every one of us at some point should be involved in making a disciple. So are we disciple makers, not church attenders, not faithful in tithing, not just loyal to a fault, but are we disciple makers? Are we actively trying to reach the person down the street that they have no hope and no help and they need someone to come in and say this, if you'll live life this way, Christian principles and lifestyle, it will improve your life so much. I'll tell you what the challenge is. We've replaced the values that Jesus Christ had with things that are good, but they're not as good as what the Bible declares should be. So don't misunderstand. I'm not being negative about any of these things, but I am trying to elevate what Jesus Christ elevated, what the Word of God elevates We've replaced those things, the values that Jesus Christ held, we replaced them with church attendance. I went Sunday, check that box. Morality, I'm a good moral person, check that box. Righteous living, I'm trying to live a righteous lifestyle, check that box. I'm living life holy, I'm godly. I'm disciplining my lifestyle. You can check that box. But we're not daily purposeful about the cause of Jesus Christ. Social Christianity. Because Christianity has been so institutionalized, we are Christian because we're American. Guess what? There's no such thing. You're not Christian because your mom was or your dad was. You're not Christian because of some association. You're only Christian because you decided and you submitted your life to the will of God. That can be the only reason. You're not Christian because you can say, I'm a member at Branches Church. That doesn't make you Christian. There will be a lot of Christians that claim Christianity, that whenever they get to heaven, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Go study that out. Read into that. 
dig into it and figure out what Jesus was saying. He was saying the people who are claiming me, who are doing works in my name, who are doing all of these things, and they they look godly. Here's the scary thing. They look godly. They look the part. I never knew them. Easy living Christianity. Someone said one time, it's, if you live for God hard, it's easy, but if you live for God easy, it's hard. And when I say easy living Christianity, you can probably think of a person you may interact with. Maybe, maybe you're looking in the mirror. But you think of that person that Sunday's the Lord's day, but Monday through Saturday, those are my days. And they're actions, their speech, your interaction with them declares otherwise. And the disciplines of the church are easier to live and say, I, I'm a Christian, I, I'm being disciplined, I'm doing all, than it is to forgive the person who's hurt you the most. But real Christianity forgives. It forgives whenever it doesn't feel right to forgive. It forgives whenever it's hard to forgive. It forgives when you have to come back and you have to pray that prayer of forgiveness again. Because what was done to you was so horribly, unspeakably wrong. But you freed them from a debt they could never repay you anyway. It is easier to dress modest when you go shopping at a shopping center than it is to speak kindly to the person who at that moment is treating you wrongly. But you still respond kindly. And you don't lose your Holy Ghost as they used to say. And here's the thing. People on the fringe of a church will never be impact makers. Those who settle in their mind that they will serve God regardless of life's trauma, regardless of temptation, those people find the struggle easier. I'll tell you, the day it got the easiest in my life was the day that I just finally said, you know what, I don't care what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to be. And all of a sudden, some of the minor things that used to get catch me off guard and I used to struggle with, they didn't go away. But I quit struggling with them so much. The final thing I want to talk about before we dive into Scripture is misplaced values. There's more value placed on doing than on being. And there's nowhere more true than in our society. We put more value on doing than on being. And if a person can speak with a flair or they have the right tempo to their music that they write, their ministry is elevated and validated. Even if we can't comprehend the message and even if their life doesn't live up to the message they keep saying. 
And that is the saddest thing to look in our society and talk about people that they have such charisma, they have such an amazing ministry, and yet whenever you look at their life, their life is full of flaws and failings. And we, we simply just say, well, they're flaws and failings. Yes, there are, but nominal Christians live at that level. Name only. Messages with substance, but hardly any style, never well received. And the mindset produces a shallow, superficial Christian that what I like to would say is self-help Christianity. If you look and read, and I read self-help books, don't get me wrong. I, I look at them, think there's some valuable stuff you can apply to life sometimes. But self-help Christianity does not change people's lives. Just looking at someone and saying, well, you're going to be blessed. You're a child of God. No, that's not what Scripture. Look at all of the apostles. Every one of them died a horrible, miserable debt. Death, debt. They paid a debt. Death. If we're going to base that, if we're going to go off what a televangelist would say, they'd say, no, they're going to be blessed till the end of their days. No. That's not what Christianity is. It's living the purpose of God even whenever it's so hard that it's going to destroy your life. You do it anyway. And I'm, I am very, very proud of the people I pastor that I see live that. And there are people that live that. And I'm very, very thankful. 2 Timothy 3 and 5 says, he's talking about false godliness. He says, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away from nominal Christians, he says, from people who they claim that they have the God. They claim they have the form of godliness. They look the part, they act the part, but you get close enough and you realize all the shiny that's there, it's lacking the power. Get away from those people. You remove yourself. We say, well, that's not very Christian. That's Bible. Get those people away from you. And I'm calling on our church, let's, let's strive toward the end of this year with a calling to change our routine. Let's grow beyond what we are. Let's expand on our commitments and our expectation of ourselves for God to apply the principles of godly living, not just to Sunday, but to every day of our life. Galatians 6, 7 through 10 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
we're all sowing. From the moment I get up in the morning, whether I realize it or not, I'm starting to sow. If I take 15 minutes and I pray, I've sown something. But if I take 15 minutes and I just turn on the news and I drink coffee, I've sown something. If I drive to work and I am kind and patient, and how many of you know it's hard? That's a test in itself in Atlanta. I've sown something. If I'm over there and giving people the howdy finger of I don't like you, I've sown something. Every day I'm sowing something, and I'm sowing in my kids. I'm sowing in my relationship with my wife. I'm sowing in my family. I'm sowing my relationship with God. If I, small decisions that we never consider, we are sowing. If I choose, and instead of going to prayer, I stay home to catch whatever show is airing that night, then I, I've sown something. I've sown to the flesh. I didn't sow to the Spirit. And if I choose to go to prayer instead of watching whatever is really enticing, the uh, I'm trying to think. Let's pick on football. Football. Instead of watching college football, if I go to prayer, I've sown to the Spirit and I've burned out something in the flesh. I'm sowing. And I'm going to reap. Here's the thing. I'm going to reap. We're all going to reap. We reap what we sow, but we don't realize all the time that we're sowing. You're sowing right now. If your heart is open, your ears are open, your mind is open, you're allowing me to speak to you. You're allowing something to be sown. I want to read it to you out of the NET. He says, do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool. For a person will reap what he sows, because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So, and in the New King James Version, it's and. In the King James Version, it's and. and a few others, it's and or so. That word so, in the Greek, it's a connective to the previous thought. He's saying because we're sowing. We're going to sow either the flesh or we're going to sow to the Spirit and we're going to reap according. He says, we must not grow weary in doing good. Don't get tired of sowing to the right thing. You keep sowing. You keep pressing, even when it doesn't feel good. He's not talking about whenever it's the best of times and you got all the energy in the world and you're ready to go attack the world. No, he's talking about the day where you don't necessarily want to sow in the Spirit. He says, don't be weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap. If we do not give up, and what he's implying here, he's implying that sowing or Christian habits, I'm going to call them habits and lifestyle, takes effort. It takes effort, but it yields great rewards. Verse 10, he says, so then whenever... We have an opportunity. Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of faith. So here are my observations about this. Sowing is portrayed as constant and ongoing. Did you sow something good today? Did you sow good seed or did you sow some bad seed? The second is doing good is seen as sowing positive seed, and we're not to get weary in doing that good. 
And this sowing good is a habit to pursue. And when I say habit, all of the things that we would call Christian lifestyle stuff, they should become habits in our life. Let me tell you where I've decided not to do cocaine. It's not whenever I have someone put cocaine in front of me. I decided before the cocaine got there. And I'm using an extreme example. But I'll tell you when I decided not to cheat on my wife. It was not when the opportunity presented itself. It was way before the opportunity ever came. So this sowing good is a habit to pursue. And doing good is not to be an abstract thing, but it's to include doing good to all people. Notice he said to all people. And a habit of doing good always, listen to me, it always, always, always produces a good outcome. Moving on a little further, 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9 says, But reject profane and old wives' tales, fables. Exercise yourself toward godliness exercise yourself toward godliness exercise yourself toward the things of god what does that make you think of when you read the word exercise how many of us exercise whether we want to or not we have to do some exercising when i get in the gym and i exercise i'm pushing my body in a certain direction yeah let me tell you what I wish John were here today. He would concur with this. John is my guy I work out with. Whenever I go work out, John doesn't, he doesn't see what I'm doing great at and say, man, you can squat. You're squat. You're so, let's just do squats because you're so strong squatting. Your, Your bench press is amazing. Let's see if we can get that up. He says, I noticed you were breathing pretty hard whenever I had you jogging over there. I think we need to jog some more. No, John, I don't want to jog more. I'm struggling now. He's not exercising me in the things that are easy. He's exercising me toward the things that I struggle with. He's pushing me in directions where I have limitations and boundaries. We have boundaries in our life. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Verse 8, for bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is, that's your relationship now with God, being baptized in the Spirit of God, and of that which is to come, that's eternal. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Both portions of Scripture go back to the concept of having habits. It's entering training in my life that will allow me to make an impact, not to just be a nominal Christian in name only, but to be a Christian that is effective, that when someone says, man, 
I need a praying person. You know, one of the best compliments I ever got, this was about three years ago. I had just started doing ministry at Emory University as a campus minister. And I walked into a, to a, a group that it's, it's represented by every Christian faith and it's represented by every world religion. So you have a bunch of people in this table and I walk in and the woman who was leading it and heading it up, Bridget, she said to me when I walked in, she said, I got bad news from the doctor. I'm very sick. I've got an illness. She said, I need you to pray for me. In front of all of these people, she said, y'all just go on. He's going to hug me and he's going to pray for me because I know that he can touch God. I was so caught off guard, I'm dropping my book back. And I looked at her, and that's the best compliment I, I have ever had in my life. Because what does that say? It says that she saw something that said, this guy has figured out how to get a hold of God. And I'm not saying that, I'm just telling you this story because whenever you, you look at someone's life, you have to see not just a nominal Christian in name only. Where's the power? Where's the, the power and the authority is God. It's all God. But we have to be connected to that source. It has to be more than just saying, well, I believe he went to the cross and died. I believe he was resurrected. It's more than that. There's a connection to the power. The scripture says that that, having that Second Timothy, having that, that form of godliness, but denying the power, not having the power, not having the association, not having God work and move. That's nominal. From such, get away from that. There are seven things, and I'm going to be closing with this. There are seven things that Scripture tells us is daily part of a Christian lifestyle. You can stand with me. The first is prayer. Prayer for daily bread. What is sustaining you? Are you living off of week old bread from Sunday? Are you living off of what is sustaining you? Prayer for daily bread. The priest every day had to go into the sanctuary and had to replace the bread with hot bread. Every day he had to put new bread on the showbread table. It had to be fresh. The second is daily purpose, Luke 9, 23, living our lives according to his purpose. The third is daily study. They went daily into one of those house and they broke bread, fellowship, and studied. The fourth is daily evangelism, Acts 5, 42, from house to house. The fifth is daily unity, Acts 2, 46. They were unified. And I specifically want to talk to our church about this. We need to start connecting beyond just Sunday and life group. Find someone today and make a plan to fellowship. Go and eat a meal together. Spend time together. We have to have unity. Revival, all revival comes out of unity. Without unity, there is no revival. Sixth is daily exhortation. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. When have you exhorted someone? Exhort them 
You can make it. You can do it. If you remove this from your life and you start applying the principles of God, God's going to turn your situation around. Exhorting is not just encouraging, but it's also loving someone enough to confront them when they're not biblically right. And you can do that in love. The seventh is this, and super important. All of these seven are important. Daily death. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Dying to yourself. Not my will. Your will. Not what I want. What you want. And every one of us can do that. If you'll close your eyes. I wonder if we could just take a moment of introspection. Measuring ourselves. Sometimes you have to bring out the plumb line of the Word of God and we have to measure ourselves by it. Does my life reflect that of a true disciple of Christ? Or am I just doing some things in name only? Am I just nominal? Am I just so-called? Am I pretending in some areas of my life? And if I am, can I submit those things to God? Can I repent? Can I remove those things from my life and turn them as they should be, present them to God? I want to pray right now for just a moment. God, you see every soul in this house. You see every person. God, you see our struggles. You see where we fail. You see where we, where we falter. God, you're not surprised by any of those things, and you're not shocked by them, and you, you don't condemn us, but instead you extend your hand toward us and you say, I've got a better life. I've got a calling. I've got a purpose, and I'll raise you up. If you'll just take my hand. God, right now, we need you to reveal some things in our life. God, I don't want some of those seeds that are there. I don't want them to bear fruit. But God, I want my heart to be right with you. I want my life to be a reflection of you. God, I don't want to just look godly on the outside and be lacking what needs to be on the inside and missing the power and the authority and the relationship that has to be there. That's not what I want. My wife's going to begin to sing. As she does, I want to invite our church family to come. And if you're here, you're a guest today. You're welcome to join us. We come to the front. We just allow God to speak to us for just a moment. Maybe the Word has brought something to your mind's eye and you're, you're looking at your life and you're saying, no one else knows this, but I, I need to deal with this between me and God right now in this service is the moment the time and opportunity to do that because we don't want to be nominal we don't want to just be a name only we want to live it God in Jesus name
Thank you, Lord, for your word, God, that calls us to correction. God empowers us. You didn't just call us, God, to be in the midst of our sin, but you called us out of it. Called us to be more than overcomers, more than conquerors. Through the power of your blood, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. If you're a guest here today, we want to connect with you. Take a moment, stop by the Connect table if you have not. Fill out a a connection card. We have a gift for you, uh, a little gift bag. If you didn't get that, we want to be sure that you get it. And uh, church family, I want to tell you uh, also we have our invitations in. You going to hold this for me, Langston? Hold that mic for me. Uh, All Nation Sunday is going to be Sunday, October 14th, 11 a.m., beautiful thing about our church family, you know, is we have many cultures represented. We have different uh, different nationalities and some of the best food. On that Sunday, we celebrate our diversity. Uh, whenever we look in Revelation, we see a church of every nation tongue, and that's what I want our church family to be. And so we celebrate that. So Sunday, October 14th at 11 a.m., we'll have our All-Nation Sunday. We're going to celebrate diversity, and we'll have a dinner following with food represented from every nation and culture, and uh, it's the best, I'm telling you, hands down, it's probably the best thing we do at church as that Sunday we celebrate. It's such a big thing. Uh, we'd love for you to join us and be a part of it, and we'll see you there. If you want to bring a food from your country of origin or uh, heritage or anything like that, we encourage you to do that. It's going to be fun and exciting. That's October 14th, but we have our invitations. They're in. They're on the back table. Grab a few, pass them out, invite someone to join you. Uh, It's going to be an awesome, awesome time. Hug somebody's neck. Tell them how beautiful or handsome they are if it's appropriate. Look, God's for you. I'm for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? You're going to make it. You're going to make it.